we are very grateful for your presence. We're thankful today to have Brother Alan Harris with us. I appreciate Brother Harris. I'm very grateful for the work that he has done through the years. I want to just mention very quickly that he is the editor of the Spiritual Sword Journal, and it is the, well, it enjoys the largest circulation of any journal in the Church of Christ. And so we're very grateful to commend this great publication to you. He has brought some copies of this latest issue. And if you want a copy of that, I will place those in the foyer. Uh, it is a great work. And Brother Harris is uh, a very busy man. He is an appellate court judge. And my understanding is he, you are the third longest tenured judge in the state of Tennessee. And so Brother Harris has a lot of legal experience. He's a preacher, a teacher. And Brother Billy has known Alan for the last 50 years or so. And I asked Brother Billy if he would to just make a statement or two because of their long association. And uh, so at this time, I will turn it over to Billy. And then we will listen to Brother Harris. I'm not going to take but just a moment or two. But yes, about 53 years ago, wasn't it? When he uh, came to get well it, in 1959, as I recall. And uh, all I really want to say is this man has taught many of us. And we're the beneficiaries of his teaching and preaching. And I want to thank him. All I want to say to the young people is it doesn't seem that long ago that I was sitting in a pew where you are your age and he would be talking about me and not brother J.W. McGarvey T.B. Larimore other pioneer preachers and then come on up to brother G.C. Brewer brother Woods and some of the ones that we were able to hear and he's right there with them and I hope you have the respect and gain the, the benefits from hearing him and men like him that we have. I want to express first my appreciation to the elders for inviting me to have a part in this meeting and to Brother Mike Hickson, for whom I have great regard, who has made it very convenient for me to be able to come and to be with you on this Lord's Day. He did everything he could for me, including try to tell me how to get here. And if you were here at nine o'clock, you heard me say that I drove around about 15 minutes trying to find this building. And I mentioned that I'm glad that he is more qualified to tell people how to get to heaven than he is to tell them how to get to the building. <laughs> but it is such a thrill for me to be here. And I never dreamed, I, I don't know why I didn't think about it, that Billy Sasser would be leading the singing when I got over here. Now I have to tell you all a thing or two. He's a grandfather. That's not the worst part. I married him and his wife. <laughs> and I'm not even old. <laughs> I just look it. I want to tell you that I love the church. My mother and father were members of the church. They did not grow up in the church. They were converted during a gospel meeting. 
But I grew up with a wonderful Christian father and a Christian mother. I've known the church all of my life. And there is nothing that is more thrilling to me than to be in an assembly like this with those of like precious faith. I have been in the offices of at least two of the governors of the state of Tennessee. My wife is related to uh, J.P. Coleman, who was a governor of Mississippi. We've been with him on several occasions. And that's all very enjoyable. It's nice to be able to know uh, various important people in our country. I've been a judge for 35 years. I've been associated with a lot of prominent and very able people. But I say all of that to say this, as much as I appreciate the opportunities that I've had, I am never more at home. I am never in more enjoyable company than when I am with members of the body of Christ. This is what I love. I love the church, I love the people, I love the fellowship, I love the association. And if I may say, I love the memories. And as I've circulated around a little bit here in the auditorium this morning, I have met so many people that I have known in the past and with whom I have some connection, I really thought I'd like to get up here and just tell about some of the associations that I've had. But there are so many that it would be virtually impossible for me to mention all of the great grand associations that I've had with members of the church. I will say this, I not only married Billy and Connie, but I married Connie's mother and her husband. And everybody always looks around and says, how did he do that? <laughs> well, Paula's first husband passed away and Curtis Perkins' wife passed away and they married and they had a big family Curtis had boys and Paula had girls and I married uh, Paula and Curtis. Curtis certainly one of the finest men I ever knew. There are several here today whose daughters babysat my girls. My girls are grown and have children of their own now. So there are just wonderful connections that I enjoy thinking about and studying about, remembering. All of it is so memorable. And I'll say this to you, and especially maybe to some of you young people. The longer that you are in the church, and especially if you remain faithful and active in the church, the more memories you will have, the more connections you will have, the more you will appreciate the relationships that you enjoy as 
members of the church. Now, there's at least one person I met today that I knew before I knew any of these. I've known Paula and Wanda and Helen and Buster back there and Elsie over here. I've known all of these people years and years and years at Getwell, but I had one person come up and speak to me a while ago that I knew before that. Sammy, Bernita back over there. Where is Loretta? Raise your hand. There she is over there. Now I baptized her when she was 12 years old at Finley, Tennessee, up near the Mississippi River. And that's been at least 75 years ago. <laughs> well, maybe not quite that long. <laughs> I had a lot of memories when Billy was up here. I washed his hand a minute ago. And the way he directed the singing, his father led singing for me. And I could just see Gorman Sasser. His Uncle John led singing for me in meetings at Middleton, Tennessee. And I'm not going to dwell on all of this unnecessarily, but I'm saying all of this to suggest that the church is family. And the church is such a meaningful relationship. And the church is something that not only are we in, but it is something that is in us. And it will mean more and more and more to us as the years go by. When I went to work with the uh, Getwell Church in Memphis, I think I just had my 21st birthday. We had an elder in the church at that time who was 78. Brother W.A. Sanders, I'll never forget him. But you would think that a young boy of 21 would not have very much in common with an elder of 78. But Brother Sanders was retired and so he gave full time to the church. He came to the building every day just as I did. He went with me to the hospitals he went with me to go out and to visit people. And I had such a close identification with him that he truly was one of the greatest influences in my life. And I remember uh, being in elders meetings occasionally. They didn't invite me to everyone, but they invited me periodically to meet with the elders. And one thing I remember about Brother Sanders that I, I think was kind of unique Elders would be discussing a problem and how they were going to handle it and what they might do. He would sit through nearly an entire meeting and not say a word. He'd just listen to what everybody else said. Then when everyone else finished, he would say, boys, they were all boys to him because he was at least 30 years older than any of the rest of them. Boys, what does the Bible say? 
And he was about six feet tall and weighed about 135, soaking wet, tall, lean. Been in a car wreck early in life. His hand was all crippled up. I can still remember that hand on that Bible. He'd open his Bible up and he'd read from the Word of God and he really knew how to focus what was important. And that was one of the first influences in my life that I've remembered for years and years and years and still influences me even today. I do want to tell one little story before I move on with our study. I used to like to fool Brother Sanders. I'd call him up, disguise my voice a little bit, play like I was somebody else, carry on with him a little bit, and then laugh, you know, and have a good time with him. So Brother Sanders uh, had a habit, as long as I knew him, <coughs> he'd clear his throat right good and loud, you know. And so uh, he decided he'd get it back on me. So he called me one day, and I picked up the phone, and I said, hello. And on the other end, I heard this. I bet you don't know who this is. <laughs> when I heard that, I knew exactly who it was, you know. One time I was in a debate with a denominational preacher in Conway, Arkansas, and Brother Sanders and a carload of people from Getwell drove over there, and I was putting it on that denominational preacher pretty hard during that discussion, and uh, we all, both had a timekeeper to tell us when our time was up. Uh, back then, we would have 30 minutes aside. And I got up and spoke, and I gave him a lot of questions and a lot of scriptures, and I was pouring it on pretty good about whatever subject we were discussing. And he got up, and he was trying to answer what I said, and he was fumbling around a little bit. And Brother Sanders said, about the audience. That man thought his time was up. He said, thank you. I think he was only too glad to sit down at that point. But at any rate, I, I think it is worthwhile since today we're talking about the church, thinking about the church, studying about the church, for me to relate at least a few of these personal memories that I have that are so precious and I think about so much and how much the church really means to us and how important it ought to be in our lives because it influences and affects everything that we do. I want to talk to you from a scriptural standpoint for a little while this morning about the church. Put up uh, the next slide. I want to emphasize the second chapter of the book of Isaiah. You know, I talked during the nine o'clock hour. Those of you who were here at that time may recall I mentioned that denominationalism, such as we know around us today, is relatively young. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31, 1517. That's less than 500 years ago. And that's when denominationalism really got its start. But when you begin to read and to study about the church in the New Testament, you discover that it was the subject of prophecy even way back hundreds of years before. And here we have a great example of it in the second chapter of the book of Isaiah. And I want to begin reading at verse 2 of that chapter. Isaiah wrote about 700 years before the time of Christ. He said, and it shall come to pass in the last days. And I want to emphasize that first. 
it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, I have emphasized here on this slide some of the aspects of that statement that is found in the second chapter of the book of Isaiah. First of all, it shall come to pass in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house, all nations shall flow unto it, and the word of the Lord shall go forth from Jerusalem. So here are some factors that are prophesied all the way back here in the book of Isaiah, 700 years before the coming of Christ. Then we turn over to the 24th chapter of the book of Luke. And here we discover a statement that is made by Christ during his lifetime beginning at verse 46, thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name, watch this, among all nations. What did Isaiah talk about? All nations shall flow unto it. What does Christ say in the commission in Luke? He says, all nations, it speaks about repentance and remission of sins to be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. What did Isaiah say? Isaiah said that it would be in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house, the word of the Lord, go unto all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And so here you have Christ coming along and echoing what was said 700 years earlier. And in verse 49, Behold, I send you the promise of my Father upon you. Tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. So first in the second chapter of Isaiah, then you come forward to the ministry of Christ in Luke 24, and he's echoing some of the same ideas, some of the same principles. Now then, we turn over to the second chapter of the book of Acts. Several years ago, Brother James Bales, who was a great scholar of the Bible, wrote a book that he called The Hub of the Bible. And when you opened up Brother Bale's book and began to read, it was about the second chapter of Acts. And what he was saying was, this chapter right here is the hub, the center of the Bible. And I understand what he meant by that because most of what happened before Acts 2 is pointing forward. Most of what happened after Acts 2 
is pointing backward. And Acts 2 is right there at the hub. It is right there at the center. Well, now remember what Isaiah said and remember what Christ said in Luke 24. And now let us look for a moment at what he said in Acts 2. Beginning in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all gathered together in one place with one accord. And suddenly there came from heaven the sound as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now here's what's happening on this day of Pentecost, about uh, two months or a little less uh, since the resurrection of our Lord. So now when all of this occurs, cloven tongues like as of fire, sound as of a rushing mighty wind, able to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, we come down to the sermon of the Apostle Peter. And that begins in Acts 2 at about verse 14. Peter, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice. I like that. Sometimes uh, people think I get too excited in the pulpit. But I go back here and I read about some of these old preachers and uh, they got pretty excited. And here it is said, Peter lifted up his voice. He, uh, he didn't just mince around. He got up and said it like it was and he raised his voice when he said it. Peter standing up with the 11 lifted up his voice and said unto them, ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem be this known unto you and hearken unto my words. For these men, talking about apostles speaking in other tongues, these men are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that. And I have that underscored in my Bible because here is a prophecy that you don't have to have a question about. You don't have to have a wonder about what this is talking about. Peter says it in the most explicit terms. This is that spoken by the prophet Joel. All right, Peter, if this is that, which was spoken by the prophet Joel, what did Joel say? Acts 2 and verse 17, he quotes Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. All right, now, when is this going to occur? Peter said, Joel prophesied this. When did Joel say it would occur? Joel said it would occur in the last days. What did Peter say about that? Peter said, this is that. So the last days don't necessarily mean the second coming of Christ. The last days is a reference to the last dispensation on earth. You first had the patriarchal dispensation where God dealt with men through the heads of the families, the fathers. And then you had the mosaic dispensation where God gave the law Mount Sinai. And now then you have the beginning of the gospel dispensation and these are the last days. The last days begin at Pentecost 
We're still living in the last days. This is the last dispensation of time. There will not be another dispensation of time on the earth after this one. And so the apostle Peter said, this is that spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days. I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Now, think about what Isaiah said about the establishment of the church. He said, the mountain of the Lord's house. And by the way, we'll just take a moment here and identify what is meant by the house of the Lord. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and beginning at verse 15, it is said, these things write I unto you that you may know how, or men might know how to behave themselves in the house of God. When I was a boy, and we would sometimes get a little restless during church and maybe whisper to one another or pass notes down or something of that kind, it was not uncommon back in my day for one of the elders to get up and say, I want to read this verse to you now. Men ought to know how to behave themselves in the house of God. And they were using that to say that when we were in the church building and when we were in the worship we ought to know how to behave ourselves. And all of that is perfectly true. But as the years have gone by, I realize this is talking about more than being in the church building. Men ought to know how to behave themselves in the house of God. Well, you're in the house of God, whether you're in this building or not. I'm not talking about a literal house, not talking about a literal building. Men ought to know how to behave themselves in the house of God. That is, as a member of the family of God. Now watch the rest of that verse. Men ought to know how to behave themselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. What is the house of God? Paul tells us in no uncertain language. It is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So we go back to Isaiah chapter 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house. Paul identifies the house of God as the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. In the last days, Isaiah said, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. Now, what do you find in Luke 24? The Lord said, tarry in Jerusalem until you've been endued with power from on high. And repentance and remission of sins, he said, would go forth in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Isaiah said, all nations shall flow unto it. And so you turn over to Acts 2 and you find that they were endued with power from on high. You read about how they were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then you find the Apostle Peter standing up and preaching to them and saying, this is that. Spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes from Joel a prophecy that begins with these very words. In the last days. And that's when Isaiah said, the mountain of the Lord's house. 
would be established and all nations would flow unto it. There was a time that God went only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But when he gave the great commission, it said go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And you find that in Acts 2. For example, in Acts chapter 2 and back at verse 5, it is said there were dwelling at Jerusalem devout men, Jews, out of every nation under heaven. And so here you have on the day of Pentecost in the second chapter of the book of Acts, the last days, men of all nations, and they're in the city of Jerusalem. Isaiah said in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house, the church, will be established in the top of the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And then you have the expression that is given in uh, Isaiah 2 and verse 4 where it is said, the word of the Lord shall go forth from Jerusalem. I've done a little study in the Book of Mormon Mormonism is a right interesting religion. And you know, they have their own uh, revelation. They claim the Book of Mormon was given by God and it's to be used alongside the Bible and so forth. But if you look in the Mormon book of Alma, chapter 5 and verse 10, it says Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Now, the Bible doesn't make that mistake. The Bible said that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And it doesn't merely say that at the time of his birth, but you go all the way back about five or 600 years to Micah chapter five and verse two, and you have a prophetic utterance that Jesus would come forth out of Bethlehem. I'm amazed sometimes when I study the Bible at how precise it is how exact it is. Because Bethlehem was just a little village. It would be like my saying that the uh, President of the United States in a hundred years from now is going to come out of Hushpuckina, Mississippi. That's not very likely, is it? So if it turned out to be true, it would be all that much more remarkable. And that's what you have to remember about what he said here in regard to Bethlehem. It was not where you would have thought a great ruler, the son of God, the Messiah, would come from, but the word of God said five, six hundred years before it occurred that it would come in Bethlehem. And it did. Book of Mormon got it wrong. It said Jerusalem. And that's a common mistake because Jerusalem was the most prominent city of the Bible, Old Testament or New. And so it is little wonder that Joseph Smith, when he was writing the Book of Mormon, wrote down that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. But no, the Bible doesn't make that mistake. And here you have the prophecy made 700 years before it occurred that the Lord's house would be established in Jerusalem and it would be in the last days. And you come forth, the Lord reinforces that before he ascended to the Father on high, 
in the 24th chapter of the book of Luke, and then you come all the way over to the book of Acts in the second chapter, and you discover a precise fulfillment to everything that Isaiah said. In the last days, the house of the Lord, all nations go forth from Jerusalem. So you look all around you today and you see all these different denominations. And that's why that I took the time in our last hour to go back over a little church history and to show how they all started, how they all began, and the fact that they're relatively young. Not any of them go as far back as the New Testament, but when you begin to study about the church that is revealed in the Bible, here is a prophetic utterance made by Isaiah hundreds of years before anything ever happened, before it ever came to pass. And then you get over into the New Testament and you begin to read the fulfillment, one, two, three, four. I mean, right down the line, everything that has been prophesied, everything that has been uttered in times past, you get over into the New Testament at the day of Pentecost and it comes to pass exactly, precisely as the Lord had said would do. I mentioned a little earlier that I love the church. And I love to study about the church in the word of God. Because I see that prophecy, I see that prediction, I see that fulfillment. And the wonder to all of that to me is, I don't have to be a member of some human denomination started by some man in the 1500s or the 1600s. I can go all the way back to the beginning. And I know that some of our friends out here do not understand. That's what churches of Christ are pleading for. I know some of them have a misconception about what we're saying. Sometimes they get a little sensitive about it. But we're not saying our denomination is better than your denomination or anything of that kind. What we're saying is, let's do away with all of them. Let's do away with all human names. Let's do away with all human and sectarian creeds. I don't have to go back to the Reformation and join a church. I don't have to be a part of something that was utterly unknown in the first century and in New Testament times. I can read about the church in the New Testament for which Jesus died. Acts 20 and verse 28, take heed therefore unto yourselves and unto the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops or overseers to feed the church of God or church of the Lord which he hath purchased with his own blood. That's the one I want to be a member of. I don't want something that started in 1608. I don't want something that started in 1830. I want to reach all the way back. I want to go back beyond London. I want to go back beyond Geneva. I want to go back beyond Wittenberg in Germany. 
I want to go back beyond Constantinople. I want to go back beyond Rome. I want to go all the way back, back, back to Jerusalem in the first century and to be a member of the church that I read about in the word of God. And on this day of Pentecost, when the word of the Lord did go forth from Jerusalem, men obeyed it and they were added to the church. On that day, the apostle Peter stood up and his sermon was not about baptism. His sermon was not about the church. Peter stood up and preached a sermon on that day of Pentecost and his sermon was about Christ. That he is the resurrected Lord. He proved that Christ was the son of God in three ways in that sermon. Number one, he said that he did miracles and wonders and signs as ye yourself know. Like Nicodemus said to Christ when he came to him in John chapter three, at verse two, he said, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these signs thou doest except God be with him. So Peter used that on the day of Pentecost. He said, Jesus performed miracles and wonders and signs in the midst of you as ye yourselves know. So number one, he proved Christ to be divine by his miraculous power. Secondly, he showed that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And he cited prophecy from David back in the Old Testament and some of the Jews thought David was talking about himself and Peter disabuses them of that idea. He said that he spake not of himself, but he spake of the resurrection of Christ, Acts 2 and verse 31. So number one, he performed miracles. Number two, he is the fulfillment of prophecy. And number three, the greatest proof of all, he said this same Jesus whom ye crucified, God hath raised up. When he got down to the grand climax of his sermon in Acts 2 and verse 36, the apostle Peter said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom ye crucified, God hath made both Lord and Christ. Verse 37 says they were pricked in their hearts. They were stricken down to the depths of their souls and they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter answered and said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he convict and exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked or untoward generation. Verse 41 says, they that gladly received his word were baptized, and there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. What a story, what an example, what beauty. And I think about that 38th verse. He tells them what to do, repent and be baptized. He tells them the authority by which they're to do it, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
He tells them how many of them are to do it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. And he tells them the purpose for which they're to do it, for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. And I have no other message today. I would urge on people the same thing that Peter said on Pentecost. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And when you do that, what does it make you? It doesn't make you a member of any denomination. Nobody says they joined a denomination on the day of Pentecost. Denominationalism didn't exist for another 14, 1500 years after this occurrence. And yet they became members of the church. Acts 2 and verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. And so we can hear the gospel. We can believe it with all our hearts. We can repent of our sins today. We can be baptized into Christ for the remission of the forgiveness of our sins. We can be raised to walk in the newness of life, not the old life of sin and sorrow and degradation and moral turpitude, but we can be raised to walk in the newness of life. We're new creatures. And we can be members of the church you read about in the Bible without ever joining a human denomination, wearing a human name, or subscribing to a human creed. That's our plea. If you're here today and subject to the gospel invitation, won't you think about doing something about it? Even today, before you leave this building, we'd love to assist you any way that we can, will you come while we stand to sing?